said, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. Just going to pray for Tim before he speaks to us. Heavenly Father, we pray for Tim now. Lord, thank you that you have been working in his heart and mind this week, helping him prepare for this evening, Lord. And we just want to pray that the words that you've given him, Lord, that you'll make him bold now and help him to speak out those words. And we pray, Lord, that you'd give the rest of us receptive hearts and help us to tune in, Lord, to what you're saying through Tim, be able to listen and absorb and actually you know we pray it will make a difference lord i pray it won't just be something that we think that's great and then we forget as we walk out the door lord help us to really absorb it into our hearts and to see how we can apply it in our lives day by day for your glory's sake we pray amen thanks andrew it's good to be back together uh, tonight. Good to be family. It's great to have James. Welcome James back. It's good to see you, buddy. I saw David Pollard lurking somewhere. Yeah, David at the back. Good to see you, David. Um, tonight's talk, um, really a title for it could be, What if you saw everything as it was meant to be? What if you could see everything as it's meant to be? What if we could see everything through heaven's eyes? What if we could really see things as they really are? You know, the Bible actually talks a lot about blindness. And um, it was one of the messianic, messianic signs that Jesus actually healed blind people. Um, uh, and God is still doing that physically. Sarah was out in India uh, a year and a half ago, a couple of years ago, perhaps now. And um, one of the groups that was praying, playing, praying there for an elderly woman in this village where they'd never seen English people before, they were talking about Jesus and they prayed for this woman who had never seen her 12-year-old granddaughter. And she got her sight back. Incredible miracle, powerful miracle. And of course, all the way through the scripture, we've seen lots of testimonies of Jesus healing blind people. God still does do that. But also, spiritually, blindness is a real problem that many people face. Many of us often face. And I want to talk a little bit about a blindness in our own hearts, possibly. Spiritual blindness, certainly in the world that God wants to speak into. About getting our eyes right. Seeing as heaven sees, looking through God's eyes. When our human eyes begin to let us down, um, we kind of realise that there probably is a time where we need to start fixing things. So I've recently, finally, had to get some glasses that I occasionally, very occasionally, occasionally, sometimes occasionally look at and think I should probably wear every now and then. <clears throat> I have to use them for reading late at night, particularly in low light. 
Um, and you just get to that point where you just say, do you know what, actually, I've just got to wear these glasses. Now, where have I put them? Because I always put them down when I need them, can't find them. So we recognize our physical states, we respond to it. But truth is, often in our spiritual state, we get anesthetized or we just become used to our spiritual state that maybe we're not seeing things right. And instead of taking that seriously, the, cha- the challenge to look at that and do something about it, we just get used to looking at things fuzzily or out of focus or actually with a real complete blindness at times. And I think that's really sad. When I was a youth worker um, here actually in Bath, but also back in Bristol many times, um, but here in Bath, m- me and my team um, a few years back worked with lots of young people, but there was this particular, uh, there were a couple of girls independently we were working with, really beautiful, one of these girls, really funny, kind, caring, generous, beautiful inside and outside. But she used to self-harm all the time, because when she looked in a mirror, she hated what she saw. She thought she was fat, she thought she was ugly, she thought she was useless. And she would harm herself relentlessly, painfully, she had this really distorted image of herself. And it used to really grieve me, it used to really grieve my team, and spend time with her, and desperately, desperately wanting to see breakthrough. Whatever this image she saw of herself, wherever that came from, whether it was culture or media or words that have been spoken over or whatever it may have been, it wasn't true. She was radiant, she was beautiful, inside and outside. Her eyes were all wrong. Something in her eyes just stopped her seeing the truth. She was blinded to the reality of who she really was. She was blinded to the truth that actually she was loved by a father who thought she was spectacular. If only she could have seen through heaven's eyes to know who she really was. What about you? When you look in a mirror, what do you see? I increasingly see this old face that I don't recognise, which is slightly depressing. But what about when we look at, hold a mirror to our hearts, to our souls? I think often, all of us, whether we're Christians or not Christians, whether we've been a Christian for a long time or really recently, often our lives are made up of broken fragments and shards of stuff that's never really fully been fixed. Stuff that we've kind of parked on one side. Stuff in our past. Stuff to do with our temperament or our attitude or our behaviour. Stuff to do with sin that we've never quite got to terms with. Uh, I, I was praying earlier in the worship. I've that, 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 been thinking a lot this week about that image of God being the potter and we're the clay. You know, that kind of picture in Jeremiah. That we're in God's hands and he's the potter and he wants to shape us and form, the, form us. Well, many of us often feel like kind of cracked pots and not very effective and very useful often perhaps feeling so shattered in life and kind of we've been pasted back together and it kind of holds together but it's a bit with tape and we kind of think that everyone else can probably see it and we certainly see it ourselves. But I don't believe that God is a kind of make do and mend person who just wants to quickly bodge us back together with a bit of sticky back plastic so that we can get on with life. I think God loves to totally restore, to recreate If only we'd let him, and if only we'd participate in that. God can do remarkable transformations if we yield to him. Um, I've said before, a few years ago, Sarah and I, when we worked in Bristol, um, went into Hawfield Prison. 
Uh, people talk about prison, certainly all their holiday camp. Hawthorne Prison, um, I don't know about now, but it was a Category A prison at the time, and it had lifers in it, people particularly who had to be segregated um, because of either sex crimes or, or kind of really heinous things. So they were, weren't just in prison for a long time. They were really, really hated by everyone in the prison, including other prisoners. And we'd been asked to go in and do a service for these guys. And I have to be honest, it's probably one of the times I've been most scared about doing anything in my life going into this kind of prison, this little grammar school boy. I'd never even had a detention at school. You know, if a teacher used to raise his voice against me, I'd well up with tears, kind of thinking, ooh. And going into this prison, and there are dogs there that look like they're going to take your hand off, and the kind of doors locking in front of you and behind you, and really intimidating environment. And then about, about five of us piled into this little chapel. To uh, I was going to lead worship with my guitar and then preach, thinking, what am I doing here? You know, these guys just look terrifying. And they all kind of poured in, poured into church, to this little chapel. And I preached from um, Luke 5, the bit where this guy comes to Jesus with leprosy. You probably know the bit. Verse 12, while Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. I've said here before, leprosy was, it wasn't just a physical disease, it was a social disease. If you had leprosy, you were an out, outcast. You couldn't worship in the temple, you couldn't come and receive um, forgiveness from God, you kept out of the town, so you were isolated, you were segregated, you were despised, people thought you'd been cursed by God. Uh, that was the view people had on you. So you were the scum of the earth if you had leprosy. And then you had all the physical symptoms as well. You know, numb limbs, so you would burn yourself and you wouldn't re- realise that you're doing it, and terrible open sores and you know it was a heinous life so you were social outcast because of your leprosy but because of the way you looked and smelt you know your body beginning to decompose for many of these guys in prison that's exactly what they felt like they felt like a leper as far as society was concerned now why were they in chapel these guys well all sorts of reasons you know, I'm sure some came because it was better than being in their cell. Some came because they thought they could have a bit of a laugh. But I don't think I've been anywhere where I felt the love of God in such a tangible way amongst what would be seen as the lowest of society, the scum of the earth. And it was quite disconcerting as these guys came in. There were one or two kind of brazen kind of guys, but most of them wouldn't make eye contact with anyone. They were just looking at the floor because they just felt despised and they knew how bad they were. And when I preached on this passage, I got to the bit where it says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And where it says in verse 12, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I'm willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. I've said here before, haven't I, what a beautiful moment. Jesus could have just said, yeah, be clean. And leprosy went. But what does he do? He reaches out and he touches this man. Why did Jesus do that? Did he need to do it? No, we know from other miracles that when Jesus said the word, miracles often happen. But you can imagine this man hadn't been touched for years by anyone. No one wanted to go near him. And Jesus reaches out and touches him. Physical touch. That's the love of God. That's looking through heaven's eyes, saying, you know, what this man needs isn't just physical healing. He needs to be held to know that he's loved by God. And Jesus touches this man. And as I said it, I could feel God was doing something in this room. 
at the end of the meeting, not quite knowing what was going to happen and whether we were allowed to do this, we said, look, if you want to come forward for prayer, because you either want to give your life to Jesus or you just want to respond to this, then come forward. And people streamed forwards. It was amazing and kind of a bit scary, really. This one guy came up to me and he looked really, really tough. And he said, I want what you say, but I know Jesus can't forgive what I've done. I wonder how many of us feel like that at times. You know, we sit in church and we think, but if people around me really knew what life was like for me, they wouldn't kind of hold me in such high regard. And as he said that, he looked down and his eyes were filling with tears. He said, God can't forgive what I've done. And he said, I have prayed again and again and again for God to forgive me. Every day, 20 times a day I pray in my cell, God forgive me for what I've done. I know he can't forgive me. And I found myself saying, put my hand on his shoulder, which probably wasn't supposed to do, and I found myself saying, but it's already forgiven. And something happened in that moment. It's just words, isn't it? But it wasn't really my words. I knew God was saying to this guy, and somehow he knew. And in that moment, something happened to him. He saw himself through God's eyes. He knew that he was loved, and actually that he was forgiven. Something had happened. The religious of the rulers of the day in Jesus' day, they were outraged by his power, outraged by his actions, and he completely confounded them. See, they were full of words and seemingly full of wisdom, but he was full of love and power. And his words carried power. God is not a make-do-and-mend, fix-up God. He's a redeemer. He's a restorer of broken dwellings. And we need to receive, by God's Spirit, we need to hear and receive his words of life in our own life. Verse 1 of Psalm 27, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. That word stronghold, it's really an interesting word in Hebrew. It's often translated as, he's the defender of my life. You know, that is a profoundly beautiful image, that God wants to defend you. He wants to defend me. Sometimes he wants to defend us against ourselves. When you look in a mirror and you hate what you see, God wants to scream from heaven and say, no, you need to see yourself with my eyes. You are my beloved child. You're my precious child. I think there's something deeply innate in humanity that actually longs to be defended. I think a wife wants to be defended by her husband. I think children want to be defended by their parents. I think blokes want to be defended by their friends. I think the vulnerable long to be defended by institutions of justice. There's something within us who says, who will defend me against the world, against my foes? Who will defend me against injustice? There's something in humanity that cries out for justice and we long to be defended. A wife to be protected, a husband to be honoured and protected. For us to cover one another's backs. The psalmist says, God is the defender of my life. Do you know God like that? Do you know him defending you? Because there's terrible accusation being spoken over you. 
the accuser of the brethren often is called, isn't he, in Revelation. Satan. He's described in that way. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. That's what's going to happen in the end. But Satan, day and night we're told, is accusing you. Before God, he's accusing you. He's reminding you of your past. He's telling you of your mistakes. He's telling you what a failure you are, constantly, day and night. He doesn't stop. So who do you listen to? Him or the defender of your life, which is God? Where do you align your heart? With the enemy or with heaven? Whose eyes are you looking through? The enemy's or God's eyes? John 8:31 Jesus speaking said if you hold to my teaching literally the word there in Greek is my words Jesus said if you listen to my words if you hold on to my words you're really my disciples then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free so often we listen to lies about ourselves and we believe them we collude with those lies we we enlarge them we give them ground to grow in we water them, we, we let the sun shine on them and then we let them grow and bear fruit and we wonder why we struggle. The psalmist says in verse 2, when the wicked advance against me to devour me, it's, in my, it's my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. This picture of the psalmist paints is one of holding on to God, clinging on to God for truth, for hope, for help. One translation says, my heart will not fear. Fear is a really insidious thing that creeps up on us. It's a really sneaky thing. It ensnares us. It trips us up. It lies to us often. Fear is horrible. I lived my life in fear for so many years. Many of you here perhaps struggle with fears. Some of them irrational, some of them irrational. Fear, tra- fear traps us. It makes us jump! <laughs> Poor Steve, sorry. <laughs> if anyone has a heart condition, I apologise. <laughs> That's what fear does when you don't expect it. It lurks waiting for a moment. See, if you see fear coming, often we prepare ourselves for it, but fear doesn't play friendly, he lurks in shadows often in the darkness. For me, it was always about darkness. Darkness was always where fear in me grew as a child. Fear of what's out there. I couldn't go to sleep without a light being on. You'll have heard me talk about this before. And, and, and it can be overpowering, that sort of level of fear. Darkness itself can be overpowering. Darkness is a really, a really, really horrible thing. And so understandably, there's a kind of primeval fear of darkness because we're not sure what's out there, but... But a spiritual darkness can envelop us, which is really, really, really frightening. And for me, that was something I lived in for so many years. I took a, I took a youth group um, to um, the Woodstock Christian Centre. It's over in, uh, near Chepstow. Um, there's this tunnel called the Tiddenham Tunnel. It's a disused railway. It's about a mile long. And um, one of my favourite things was taking the, the, these cocky teenagers down this disused railway tunnel. We've had to do a risk assessment before we went away. And I used to just write on it, yeah, this is probably really risky. So we had to take these teenagers down there. But one particular 
can, and we kind of put lots of safety things there. And, you know, it, it was, I would always walk down the tunnel the day before. And we never told them we were going to take them down this tunnel. But it was, it's such a bizarre thing. And I would walk down the day before to make sure no giant pits had opened in it and swallowed them up, because that would have been a bit unfortunate. But when you walk into this tunnel, it has a very gentle curve. And when you walk down, we'd get them all holding hands, like in a crocodile. And we'd walk them down the tunnel. And it's about building trust and... And when you walk in, first of all, you've got a bit of little light. And as the tunnel curves, you lose the end. And then suddenly you're plunged into darkness. And as you keep walking a bit further, it's completely pitch black. I've said before, you put your hand in front of you, you can't see a thing. And we would walk them down the middle of this railway tunnel in the centre of the uh, tracks and take them out the other end. The last time I did it, what I hadn't told them to do, I had a friend who was also a youth worker. And I'd sent him down a tunnel an hour before. And we recorded this on this big speaker. We recorded the sound of a train. And I gave him a really powerful um, thousand watt head torch. So when we were about halfway down the tunnel, he started playing this. He was about 100, 200, 300 yards ahead. He started playing the recording of this, this train, and this head torch came on. Yeah, it was a very mean thing. But <laughs> fear is a very, very powerful thing. <laughs> Darkness is a powerful thing. They were fine. After a bit of counselling and prayer, they were all fine afterwards. It wasn't a problem, really. Darkness traps us and paralyses us with fear. I literally used to get paralysed with fear with darkness when I was young. And for many of us, we get into this position, it's like being in this, I've spoken about it before, this place in in Virginia called the Great Dismal Swamp. It's about 100,000 acres of nothingness. It's just swamp. There's no people, there's no life. It's just mostly water. And... um, there's no light in this place at all. And you get in the middle of it. It's not a good place to go because once you get in the middle of it, every, everywhere looks the same. You don't know which is the way out. You don't know... And you feel trapped by it. Sometimes we feel that in our own lives. We feel like we're in this swamp of despair. and We're not sure which way to turn because every way looks the same. And all the things we feel about ourselves, even if we're Christians, the things that we struggle with, the repetitive things, we feel like we're trapped in this swamp. And actually sometimes we maybe have highlights, perhaps in church or where we're going to camps, or that we have moments we break free, but then we feel like we're trapped back in this swamp. And we struggle with a feeling of powerlessness or insignificance or fear that overwhelms us. Sometimes we can feel worthless or lost or just really scared. Or we cover that up by getting really busy. Busyness or distractions to kind of anaesthetise our heart. Someone once said, busyness is an anaesthetic to the soul. I think that's really true in our days. That we get busy in order to cope with the issues that we're not resolving in our life. Perhaps because we're not ready or able to face our own heart, our own frailty. Or we're not able to face the enemy in our lives. But busyness is a dulling reality that keeps us locked into this soulless living. And we as Christians aren't supposed to be just being busy. I think business is about being in control at times, whereas I think God is wanting to free us from that. Business is about getting on a gerbil wheel and keep going and going and going and going and going. And sometimes we're scared to get off and take a look at ourselves and let God look into our hearts to really reveal the deep things in us that God wants to heal and transform. So what fears have you got? What struggles 
have you got? Is it issues of self-worth? You know, suicide is the biggest killer of under 50 men, men under 50 in the country now. It's a massive problem. And it isn't just outside the church. Do you struggle with how you look? Do you struggle with your weight? Do you struggle with the internet, with porn? Do you struggle with jealousy or self-hatred or self-harm? Do you struggle with breaking off from the past and just little habits that you just can't seem to deal with? Or a sense of shame or inadequacy as a Christian? Do you struggle with regret? Do you struggle with sleeping? What are the issues and the challenges where you just don't feel fully whole? Do you feel really lonely, isolated, unspiritual? See, I think God wants us to take a real honest look at ourselves, but then look with God's eyes so that we can have hope. One of the reasons I love the Psalms so much is because they don't paint this lovely, fluffy kind of image of, oh, become a Christian and your life will be glorious and you'll be one of Jesus' little bunnies and everything will be happy. The psalmists often recognize that life is tough and there are challenges and there are enemies and there are assaults on our heart and our soul. The psalmist often says life can be deadly and dangerous. But actually if we cry out to God, he's a God who wants to save us. Psalm 27 is one of my favorite psalms. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? It's helped me through difficult times, often this psalm. At times when actually I want to give way to fear, when things are difficult, when I do feel there's all sorts of crowding pressures coming in on me. God, will you deliver me? Will you take me from this place? God is the God who is our source of salvation. I think that's one of the keys for us, recognizing that, knowing that, and staying connected to our source of light and salvation. In his hands, he shapes us, he forms us, he holds us. And in the light of his holiness, he purifies us. His desire is to refine us in the furnace of his love, his holiness. That's why we spend time in worship. That's why we sometimes want to dwell rather than zooming in and out. So often in our days we flirt with God, we pop in, we have a bit of time with him, then we zoom off back to our lives and we come back a bit for a bit more. And then we go. God wants us to dwell, to spend time with him, to rest with him, to stay in his hand, to stay in that place of vulnerability, to say, God, this is me, all my brokenness, all my shards, all my bits of cracked pottery. Here I am, God. I, I, I actually, truth be told, I'm a bit of a mess. I present a really strong front to many people, but... When I'm in your presence, it's uncomfortable because I know you see me as I am. And God says, yeah, I do. But I look with eyes of love and I look with eyes of potential because I know what I want to transform you into. We're not done yet. And if you just rest in my hand long enough for me to shape you and mould you, then we can do a beautiful thing. I want to put you in the fire of my furnace, my refining fire, to heat you, to mould you. Not to destroy you, but to destroy sin, to refine you into something beautiful, to cleanse you, to purify you. And that's why the psalmist wants to dwell. He says that, doesn't he? One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple.
And we can do that together in worship, and that's really good. But we need to do it individually in God's presence as well. And whether it's listening to a worship CD on the way to work, whether it's taking ten minutes out on a lunch break just to go and be in God's presence in some space somewhere, whether it's time at the beginning of the day or the end of the day, whenever it works for you, to just spend time dwelling with God to let him begin to refine. God wants to set us high on a rock above the raging storms, secure, free, hopeful and enduring. And he wants us to wait in his temple. That speaks of a place of worship, of sanct- sanctification, of holiness. So are you prepared to wait and be changed? I'm going to finish by playing you a video. See, there's this mystery to God, this final mystery, that when God saves us and redeems us, it would be easy to imagine that he would just take the mess that we are and kind of slightly scrumple it up and just do something new, completely new. And God does make you a new creation, but somehow in the mystery of who God is, he takes your brokenness, all your kind of shards of shame and brokenness and sin and struggles and your kind of personality traits, the good and the bad ones, and somehow he refines them and he heats them and he molds them and he shapes them and his desire is to turn you into something remarkably beautiful and unique. Like nothing ever seen before and like nothing will ever be seen again. Every single one of you has a purpose and a calling that's unique. That God isn't just making it up as he goes along. He knows you intimately. He knows what, what fires your imagination. He knows what excites you. What makes you laugh. What makes you cry. What makes you feel really warm. What gives you dreams and visions. And he says, I want to take all that. And I want to harness that. So that you can be this weapon of mass destruction for the enemy's kingdom. And he's able to do it because he's God and he's a creator and he's extravagant. He can take all the times when you went and faced Goliath and got mullered. And instead of you hitting him with a stone, you got smashed in the face with a sword. He can somehow take your failure and turn it around for glory. Yes, he can take the times you've beaten Goliath, and that's wonderful. But let's be honest, most of us here have been smashed up more times than we've beaten Goliath, if we're honest. And God says, but we're not done. I want to train you to be a giant killer, but I want to help you in your journey by transforming you and remaking you. And You are not supposed to do this on your own, because if you do, you're going to get busted. God wants to do it with you and in you, alongside you, through transformation. Are you willing to yield your wounds, your failures, your shame, your gifts, your strengths? Are you willing to yield that to God fully and honestly? To lay yourself bare and say, God, here I am. I'm a bit of a mess. Please transform me with your fire. And if you do, God can turn you into something magnificent.